The following Bible study is a Wednesday night lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. Song of Solomon, chapter 3, is where we are, so why don't you turn there at this time? Song of Songs, as some of your Bibles write it as that. Well, which one is it? Song of Songs, or is it the Song of Solomon? The answer, yes. Uh, Solomon wrote, according to the books of First and Second Kings, we learn a lot about David and the kings of Israel, but one of the things we learn is so- Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. And of those songs, we got to see, you know, this one. This is the big one. Uh, That's why it's called the Song of Songs. Maybe the song of all the songs that he had written. uh, Maybe he loved this one the most. Or maybe this one has the most meaning. Or maybe even inspired by the Lord, just say, this is the song I want you guys to see. And it's the romantic love song between a shepherd king and this Shulamite uh, woman. Great stuff. Uh, I came across a poem that was going to crack up to me. Faith A. Mills wrote this. I climbed up the door and I shut the stairs. I said my shoes and I took off my prayers. I shut off my bed and climbed into the light. All because she kissed me goodnight. (laughs) Romance will make you do stupid things. Some of you are still trying, wait, huh, what? It's a little confusing, but that's the point. That's the point. Uh, yeah, you know, you, you say stupid stuff. You, you know, we, we as romant, romantics, you know, we, we, you, you see lovebirds, and sometimes it makes people sick. Oh, that makes me sick. Uh, you know, we say, and, you know, get a room or whatever. But, uh, but in, in the thick of it, um, man, it's, it's one of the most joyful and beautiful things that God really is created, and it's one of those things that we as people get to enjoy, and it's really something that's godly and beautiful. The world has sadly taken romance and taken it to a, you know, a a dark level, and it's hard sometimes for us, even in this culture and the world that we're living, to get our heads around this idea of romance, and even some of the stuff we're going to talk about tonight, you're going to be thinking, man, this is weird, but I think it's only weird because we've made it that way. We've tainted sexual uh, pleasure. And by the way, this isn't just sexual. It's, it's also relational and, and it's long-term. And boy, you know, there's so much we, we could talk about. Who, who is this woman? We, we mentioned that she might be the Shulamite woman, but it also might be this, this girl named Abishag. Some people argue that it's Abishag. Does anybody remember who Abishag was? Um, well, some of you are thinking, you mean Austin Powers, Shagadelic, right? Like, is that what we're talking about? No, that's what the world has done with these kinds of things. Uh, the idea is, no, Abishag was this girl that was sort of a servant of David's. And um, it's kind of a weird thing, but when David got really old, he was cold. He was always cold. And so they got this girl, Abishag, to come and warm him. Well, that's weird. Well, they didn't have little micro heaters or you just couldn't turn up the thermostat necessarily. So they would have this young girl sort of warm the king. Now, whether she was one of the king's wives or whether she was relation, like we could talk about, about all that, but, but definitely was considered one of David's sort of harem or, or wives. And so some argue, no, this was Abishag. Some say, no, it was a Shulamite woman. Some others say, no. You know, in fact, by the way, um, there's, there's, there's several women that I think we could talk about that may or may not be this, but um, some people think this was Solomon's very first wife which was a, a lady named Naama. So Abishag, Naama, the Shulamite woman. Um, it's interesting that we have somewhat of a mystery to solve. I'll, I'll give you maybe some evidence tonight why it could be Abishag. I'm not going to die on this battlefield of, is it Abishag or Naama or the Shulamite woman or whatever? Um, but it's, that's not the main point. The main point is we're the bride of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom, and this is a beautiful picture for us and how the bridegroom loves us, and how we love the bridegroom. Um, It's also a picture for Israel, as we looked at how God loves his people as a wife and a husband to Israel is to God. Um, It's also this beautiful opera. And each one of these chapters are like an act or a scene. And and there's different stanzas and what have you. And it's it's quite amazing. If you're into poetry and into opera, uh, you you could really spend a lot of time in the Song of Solomon uh, trying to figure out what's actually happening and all that. 
But, um, but we're going to take a look at it on a kind of a smaller surface level, but at the same time, it's, it's been rich and it's been beautiful as we've looked at it. So um, we'll take a look at maybe why Abishag might just be uh, one of the or possibilities of who Solomon loved the most. That's the idea. Whoever this is, it seems that this was Solomon's girl. Which one out of her 700 wives and 300 concubines? Well, her, his main squeeze <laughs> is, is you, you wish you could say one and all only, but that's not the way Solomon rolled, and that, that was never God's intention. Uh, it's Solomon who sort of hurt the picture here. Uh, so we have to kind of put all those wives and concubines out of our mind and look at this and realize Solomon must have had one that was really his true love, and that's who this probably was. Now, in chapter 1 and 2, we saw the first two acts. You know, we saw, um, you know, this woman uh, talking about her failures and shortcomings. But he said, you're beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. You know, and he gets into this description of, of his love. And, um, and then she talks about how he, he was like food to her. And he, he brought her to his banqueting table in chapter 2. Um, and we also saw that she was sick with love, lovesick with how much she loved him there in chapter 2, verse 5. One of the things we sort of finished with last week was there in verse 14 of chapter 2. He said, Oh, my dove, thou art in the clefts of the rock in the secret places of the stairs. Let me see thy countenance. Um, The idea of being in the cleft of the rock. This was the bridegroom being quoted by the bride. She's saying, he said... I'll put you in that place of the cleft of the rock. And that's where you and I are as we're in Christ Jesus, protected, even as Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock there at Mount Sinai so that he could see the afterglow of God passing by. I mean, these are the kind of analogies and illustrations and principles that we see all throughout the the book of uh, Song of Solomon. But um, uh, in verse 16, we sort of ended last week, and I want to kind of remind you so we can pick it up. In, in verse 16 of 2, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth me among the lilies. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe, a young heart upon the mountains of Betar. Um, okay, so um, he's headed out. He's going uh, on a trip into the mountains. Now, we have in chapter 3, when he's gone... She has what some would say is perhaps a dream while he's gone, and it bothers her that he's gone. You know, it's like um, some of you, when you have to go to work, and, and uh, you're so sad because your spouse is going to be gone for a day or two, and you, you kind of don't like that. Others of you are like, boy, I can't wait till the door hits him on the way out. Um, but you're not the good picture that we're talking about here. We're talking about a, a really good marriage here, uh, <laughs> sad to say. Uh, and, and man, you know, by the way, how can you get to this place? This is one of the things we ask in the Song of Solomon. How can we be lovesick? This is, in fact, a marriage manual. Um, not only is it a picture of how Christ loves his church, but it also is a marriage manual. And I think it's a good thing when a, when a couple, especially the younger they are, if they can establish this early in their marriage, to value being with each other. Don't, don't spend a lot of time apart from each other. It's, it's sort of a cool thing in, in, our, in our world to just be apart. Uh, and, uh, man, I've even heard kind of what I would call horrible stories of young couples just when it's time for vacation, they go on two separate vacations. And they just, one person goes one way. I'm not saying it's bad to do that once in a while or, you know, if there's a thing like that. But, but there's couples that I've met that literally they're one vacation a year. It's like, okay, I get two weeks in Las Vegas, she says, and I get two weeks up in Alaska to hunt and fish. And then they come back together after their vacation and go back to their jobs and work. Um, a, a good marriage, you want to spend time with each other. Um, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And, and the problem is some couples don't see the value in really investing solid time together, just time with each other. Um, I hope that you're couples that just want to spend time with each other because where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And I see a lot of people with their divided time and their divided hearts. It's one of the, one of the big goofs of marriage. People invest in a lot of other things before they invest in each other. We have that thing happening here. He goes off into the mountains, uh, and she decides to sleep in. Now, this, this first part of this probably is a dream that she's having, or a nightmare, actually, about being away from her beloved, uh, you know, her, her king, shepherd king. 
Uh, So let's check it out. Verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, By night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the broadways, and I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. Um, the idea is she chose to stay away from him. It, it's, it's likely, and a lot of the commentaries you read about this will say that she was invited to go with them to frolic up in the mountains or whatever that was going to be doing, having a good time up in the mountains. But she, she said, no, I'm going to stay home. And then she has this dream, oh no, I, I'm not with my beloved. And she went to find him, but she couldn't find him. Have you ever had those dreams where it just keeps going and going? It just seems like you're chasing after something, but never to find it. You know, dreaming is a funny thing. Um, The average dream lasts about two seconds, they say. And and the ones that you think are all night, that you're just dreaming all night, chasing after that, two seconds. But somehow your brain slows it down and you think it's this, and it seems like you've been dreaming it for hours and hours, probably just a few seconds. Um, Isn't it weird how a dream can almost build in a sense of time? Uh, to, to the dream. Like dreaming and, and the brain and sleep, what an interesting study. And really, we don't, we don't know much about it. Um, does the Lord use dreams? Well, the Bible says yes. Are all the dreams the Lord speaking to you? Probably not. It might just be the pizza that you ate the night before uh, causing, you know, uh, wild dreams. Could be. Uh, I remember as a kid, uh, I used to walk in my sleep all the time. Uh, and I did crazy stuff. Uh, I, I mean, um, I woke up at the next door neighbors once. Uh, um, one time, one time I, I woke up and my whole bedroom was rearranged. Everything except, remember back in the 70s, the waterbed? I had a big waterbed. That's the only thing that didn't get moved. Everything else, the dressers and all the stuff, the desk totally rearranged. And my door was locked. Nobody came in and played a trick on me. It was just, I always wondered why I would wake up so tired, you know? (laughs) During daily doubles in football, I remember waking up, I would wake myself up doing calisthenics uh, in the middle of my bedroom uh, uh, in the middle of the night. And I'd wake up, you know, exhausted from doing burpees and, you know, uh, agility drills there in my bedroom. Uh, But that's the way I rolled when I was a kid, especially, Um, you know, go do something fun and I would dream about that thing. Uh, my, my whole family, my grandma and grandpa and my, my sisters, we were in a travel trailer at Howard Prairie Lake and we were fishing trout out of the lake there for uh, several days camping. And they just had a blast because I was sitting on the edge of the bed at the middle of the night with my fishing pole fishing uh, off the bed. And they were all just sitting around talking to me like, hey, Brett, what are you doing? I'm fishing, you know, and I'm talking. I don't remember any of this. At least they say this happened. Uh, I don't know if I believe them or not, but... Um, But yeah, your brain is weird. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes these dreams are meant to tell you something. And I wonder, have you ever noticed that some dreams have a little more gravity than others? Or or maybe that you have a retention of those dreams a little bit better? Those are the ones I I wonder sometimes if you should pause. Say, Lord, are you trying to just stir my heart about something or give me direction? Young men will dream dreams. Old men will dream, uh, see visions in the, in the latter days. That's, that's what's going to happen. So why not just be open to the idea? Maybe the Lord is speaking to you. Be careful. Um, if, if a dream tells you to do something crazy, don't do it. Uh, if a dream tells you to do something contrary to the Scripture, don't do it. Uh, I, I, once in a while, I have somebody come and say, I dreamt, I think it was the Lord telling me, and they'll say something, you know, I'm supposed to leave my husband or something like that. Um, uh, do you have grounds for biblical divorce? No. Well, that's not of the Lord. That's probably Satan giving you that dream. You know, I mean, you have to measure and judge what you're hearing in dreams. This dream here is interesting because this is going to be a foreshadow of something that's actually going to happen in her life for real. Um, have you ever had a dream like that? where you dreamt something, and then, lo and behold, it kind of comes to pass. That's what's going to happen here with this, this girl. So she's dreaming. She's looking for, her, you know, bridegroom, her husband, and she, she so, seems to sort of miss the moment to go and be with them in the mountains. She sort of stayed back and didn't go with them, and now she's, she's missing him. So she, she goes up into the streets, verse 2, I will rise down, go about the city into the streets and the broadways, and I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but found him not. Man, she couldn't find him. Do you ever wonder, if the Lord wants to meet with you, spend time with you, and do you ever miss opportunities? 
Now, I do know that if anybody seeks the Lord with all of their heart, they're going to find him. And, and that's a promise. Ultimately, the, the true seeker will ultimately find the Lord. But I've found in, more to, in my own little microcosm, I wonder if there's been times in my life where the Lord wants to speak to me or spend time with me, but I was unwilling for any given, you know, time. Have, have, have you ever been stirred during a time of difficulty? I, I think I'm going to get up early and and uh, seek the Lord a little bit before I head off to work. And I'm going to get my Bible out and journal and pray and just sit and drink some coffee by the fire with the Lord in the morning. But then morning comes. And then you've got the, the snooze button calling out your name. And you have a decision to make. Do I get up early like I planned? Or do I sleep in? Hey, I don't have to be at work for much longer. I can sleep in. I need my beauty sleep. And so there in your clarity of your snoozing, you push the snooze button to the very last possible moment, uh, and then you head off to work. Do, do, do you miss something that the Lord maybe would have really revealed to you? Are you missing something that might have been powerful and insightful? And, and I do wonder sometimes, how many times have I missed opportunities? We think we need our sleep. But the question is, do you need sleep more than you need the Lord? and his guidance and direction. And, you know, that sleep is important. I'm not knocking sleep, but at the same time, I wonder if getting up early and seeking the Lord is not a bad plan and uh, spend time with the Lord, just, just pressing in. I'm so glad that Daniel chose to press in. He didn't have to. He was an old guy. And if you want, you can keep your finger here and go with me or, or just jot it down. But in, in Daniel chapter 10, there's this interesting story where here's old Daniel... And there in about 536 B.C., Daniel's there uh, in, you know, uh, Babylon. At the time, Cyrus was the king of Persia. And Daniel, being in captivity as a Jew in Babylon, he, uh, he, he starts to fast and pray for three whole weeks. Um, that's a pretty fervent thing to do, to, to fast and pray for three weeks solid. In fact, in Daniel chapter 10, it says in verse 2, In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread. Neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth. Neither did I anoint myself at all till the three whole weeks were fulfilled. So 21 days of Daniel fasting and praying. But then we see um, uh, suddenly this angel shows up. This hand touches him at the end of his 21 days. And he says in verse 11, And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to thee, and stand upright, for unto thee I am now sent. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said unto me, Fear not, Daniel, from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand, and to chasten thyself before God. Now what's this guy saying? This angel who later we're going to find out, Michael the archangel is showing up here. He says, from the very first day you set your heart on fasting and praying, it's almost like the Lord was counting the days of how long he was doing this. He says, um, that uh, I've come there, thy words were heard, and I have come for thy words. Verse 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. And um, one in 20 days, but lo, Michael, the one of the chief princes came to help me and I remained there with the kings of Persia. What's going on here? Daniel's about to receive this amazing word from the Lord, but there was a spiritual battle going on. Uh, when it says the prince of Persia, don't, don't picture some physical king. He's talking about a spiritual entity. And from this verse and many others, we, we do wonder if there seems to be demonic powers and entities or, or fallen angels that seem to be rulers over various regions of the world. Now, if you're a big traveler and you've traveled to a lot of different countries, you you get a sense that there is a certain darkness in different places around the world. Um, And Persia has definitely been one of them for a very long time that's had some darkness over its nation. But Daniel's sitting there praying, and suddenly Michael the archangel has to show up to fight off this, this, um, this evil entity that's keeping the messenger from the Lord to speak to Daniel. What would have happened if Daniel gave up on his fasting instead of going 21 days, what if he went for 19 or 20? He said, oh man, I'm hungry. Let's go get a burger. 
uh, I wonder if he would have never received the, the prophecies that he's about to receive from the Lord. But it's because he was determined to spend a section of time with the Lord and said, I'm not going to cheat. I'm just going to seek the Lord for 21 days. When was the last time you or I said, let's just carve out 21 days? Fasting, prayer, not even take a shower. I would recommend the shower, but, uh, but you know, it's, it's up to you what you want to do. But Daniel didn't even take a shower. Of course, in those days, they didn't take showers quite as much as we do. But the, the point is, he set his life aside to seek the Lord. And because of that, he received amazing truth uh, from, from the Lord. And the rest of the book of Daniel kind of gives us all that, which is powerful stuff if you know the book of Daniel. My point is this. What are you and I missing out on? Okay, Lord, yeah, do whatever you want. Go frolic in the mountains, but I'm going to sleep in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not spend time with you. And, and then we wonder why we're not feeling the presence of the Lord in our lives. M- meanwhile, he wants to be with us. That's going to be a theme tonight in, in the Song of Solomon. You'll see what I mean as we keep going. So in this dream, she rises up and runs around the street saying, where's my beloved? But she couldn't find him. Verse 3, back to Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 3. The watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, saw ye him whom my soul loveth? <laughs> I was but a little that I passed from them, but I found him whom my soul loveth. So the idea is maybe the watchmen were there to help her find um, her lover. Uh, and it didn't take much time after she went to the watchman to, to, uh, to get reconnected to the one she loved. I wonder if there's a lesson in that for you. Who are the watchmen in this story? I wonder if that's the body of Christ. The rest of us should be pointing people where Jesus is, where our beloved Jesus is. And, and some, sometimes that's your job, to help people find Christ. We'll see more of that as we go. Maybe the watchmen were pastors, ministers, servants of the Lord to point people in the right direction. But after just a little time, verse 4 passed from them, but then I found him whom my soul loved. I held him and I would not let him go until I had brought him to my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field that ye stir not up nor awake my love until he please. So verses one through four, it's the woman speaking. There is, by the way, remember how I told you last week, a debate about who's speaking at any given time. And one of the things, some of your newer translations will put verse four, or the last part, uh, pardon me, verse five, uh, as the, um, the, the man speaking. And there's debate. Uh, which one is it? Yeah, but it says, uh, don't wake up until he pleases. Some people say it'd be better translated she. But we don't know for sure. So that's why some of your translations say that. But as I've looked at it, uh, I, I kind of land that verses one through four, all the way through verse five, is the woman speaking of her bridegroom. And she's saying, she found him, she brought him into her mother's house, which by the way, the Shulamite woman, Shulam would have been miles up north, probably uh, north of Galilee. Um, So this might be a reason why she could have been a a woman actually from Jerusalem, literally, because her mother's house seems to be there. Um, And so they go in there, goes into the mom's room and he falls asleep and she says, don't wake him up. Verse 6, now we have, um, so remember there were three main groups. There was, the, there was the speakers. There was the bride and the bridegroom. Those were the two main ones. But then you have sort of this public choir in this, you know, soap opera or this uh, opera of, of romance. Um, and once in a while the choir pipes up. Um, and it might be the women from Jerusalem. It could be from time to time the brothers of the bride. But uh, we'll talk about that. But I think right here we have the women of Jerusalem now sort of chiming in in a sort of a choir sort of way, observing what's going down. What's going down? Well, this is something new. We shift gears in verse 6. And we have the king coming into Jerusalem. Um, So if you could follow along with this, you basically have this shepherd girl or this uh, girl tending vineyards, and the shepherd king meets her, loves her, brings her back to Jerusalem. But when the king was gone from, during her dream, now verse 5, her dream is over. Are you guys still with me? And in verse 6, her uh, groom is coming back. But he's coming back in a way that's pretty grandiose. Uh, 
Um, pretty amazing. As a king of Jerusalem would come, you've got these women of Jerusalem sort of saying, look, the king's coming, and here's what it looks like. So we see that in verse 6. Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant? Behold, his bed, which is Solomon's, three score valiant men are about it, a valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man hath a sword upon his thigh, because the fear in the night. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, the covering of it of purple, and the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. So you have here the description, the women of Jerusalem saying, here he comes. And what do they see? It's sort of this kingly entourage. And the things that they see is, um, you know, pillars of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. They were probably literally burning, you know, torches, but also had fragrances going uh, as the king would come. They'd see the pillars of smoke from, from this entourage going up. And you could smell it, the, uh, the wealthy merchant uh, items that would make this group smell amazing. And also, there was a certain bed, if you could picture in like some of your movies, the bed that was carried. It's not your average sleep number bed. This thing had 30 men carrying this bed that Solomon was, I picture him laying there with a bunch of grapes, you know, just eating the grapes as as they're carrying him into Jerusalem. Uh, He's all chilled out on his bed. But but along with those guys, three score uh, men carrying it. But it says also there were valiant men around it. They all, verse 8, hold swords. So the king is being brought in to Jerusalem, and he's got a huge posse of armed soldiers with the sword. And man, there's so much here we could talk about. Uh, Just even the sword. You know, um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Man, the link to the sword in our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, the Bible says. It's the sword of the Spirit that you and I are supposed to take up, and that's our defense. And so in our relationship with this shepherd king, one of the things you and I can be really glad about is that we have the king of kings, and we have, you know, that whole uh, group of people that's coming with them that we get to be a part of. It's not that this, this woman is outside of that. She's going to be called into that as the bride the bride of the bridegroom. She gets to be a recipient of that same protection, that same glory, that same blessing. And all of these have images and pictures that have meaning. Uh, It says here that the chariot that he made from woods of Lebanon, he made their pillars of silver. Silver in the Bible. Anybody know what that speaks of? Anybody? Redemption in the Bible. One of the things you almost always see with silver is redemption. When you see gold, that speaks of anybody? Royalty and deity, right, deity, which is kind of cool. So it says here he made himself a chariot of wood of Lebanon. He made pillars there of silver. The bottom was of gold. The bottom of this chariot was gold that he's standing on. And then the covering of it was purple. Does anybody remember what purple means in the Bible? Royalty or kingliness. It was royal. Uh, purple was a hard color to make, uh, and it was uh, very um, costly. And having silk of purple was kind of a big deal. And so they would put purple on a king, even to the time of Christ. And that's why, by the way, when they were making fun of Jesus, as they were beating him, remember they put upon him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. They were mocking him. But that's kind of the idea there. Purple is the color of, of royalty. So there's this picture of this royal king, but it's also got deity. Um, the redemption's there. I mean, we can talk about that. Um, the cedars of Lebanon, wood speaks in the Bible of humanity. Now, if you're saying, well, where do you get all this stuff? Boy, that, that's a whole nother sermon. Um, and we've been through some of that. When we were going through uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we spent a lot of time talking about these various, um, you know, substances and their meaning throughout the Bible. And you can uh, catch up on that if you missed that section. It's just the five, first five books of the Old Testament. You can go through it in about four or five years. No big deal. But no, I, I say that jokingly because I, I don't want to dis- discourage you. You're thinking, man, how do I got to figure all this stuff out? But I'm trying to show you just in a quick form here that we're seeing 
the shepherd king pictured coming into Jerusalem, and it's pointing us to Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We can talk about the second coming of Christ and how he's going to come with a sword coming out of his mouth. And he's going to come, you know, in royalty and written on his thigh, King of kings, Lord of lords. There's so much we can talk about the king coming to Jerusalem. We can talk about it here with Solomon. We can talk about Jesus when he came in there uh, at the first coming. Or we can talk about his second coming where Christ is going to come uh, and, and uh, we get to be invited to be with him at that point. So a lot of imagery, a lot of picture here in the Song of Solomon about Jesus and our, our shepherd king coming for his bride. Well, all that to say, after the choir of women sing verses 6 through 10, then um, the, uh, the woman says the last verse here. She says in verse 11, Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon with the crown, wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals and in the day of the gladness of his heart. What's she doing? She's pointing everyone to the king. That's what the bride of Christ should be doing. That's what John the Baptist did. Uh, Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest man ever born among women. What was his greatest thing that he ever did? Pointed to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. It was John the Baptist who pointed, it was all about paving the way for Jesus. And I believe that's what you and I are called to do as the bride of Christ, like she's doing. Look at the king, she says, in all his glory. Um, That's what she's doing. She says, behold, old daughters of Zion, the King Solomon with his crown. Now, here's some interesting stuff. She says, with, wherewith the crown that his mother crowned him. Hey, what's going on there? Who was Solomon's mother? Anybody? Bathsheba. Was Bathsheba the one that crowned him? Well, we don't know that until we get to the Song of Solomon. But it makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't David had crowned Solomon as king? Well, there's a reason. And you read that in 1 Kings chapter 1. It's kind of a crazy story. But if you remember in 1 Kings chapter 1, um, Sol- Solomon was just a, a young guy, and, and, and uh, David promised Bathsheba that Solomon would reign when David died. That was the way it was going to go down. But in 1 Kings chapter 1, there was kind of an interesting uh, dude, um, a guy named Adonijah, who was uh, one of the other sons of David. And David got kind of old and maybe, I'm just going to say, unable to get out of bed. Maybe he was so old and, and seemingly a little forgetful. Maybe, maybe he was pretty frail as a little old man lying in his bed. And what had happened was everybody knew that, that David was on his way out. So this guy, Adonijah, um, one, of, you know, one of the sons of David, um, says... You know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty cool guy. I think I should be the next king. And he starts, you know, killing the fatted bulls and doing the procedures that would start to prepare the, the people to reign, have him reign as king. And everybody shrugged their shoulders and said, okay, well, whatever. I guess Adonijah is the new king of Israel. And it was all well into the process, but it was just Adonijah being, a, it was a power grab. Everybody knew that Solomon should have been the one being crowned king, but nobody was around to, to make, it, make it stop. David was too old to know what, he was, what was even going on. So Bathsheba in 1 Kings chapter 1 goes to David and says, David, listen to me. Your son Adonijah, right now as we speak, he's slaying the bulls and doing the whole pr- procedure to be crowned king of Israel. You're, you're you know, unable to rule. And you said Solomon. You gave me your word that Solomon was going to be the king. And so David says, okay, you're right. Solomon is to be the king. And he got, you know, the people in there said, okay, thus so it shall be written, so it shall be done. Solomon is the next king. And the, the scribes and everybody heard it. So they ran out there and basically told, you know, this, this uh, guy Adonijah, sorry, Solomon's going to be the king. You're not it. Right as they were getting ready to put the crown right on his head. Well, the problem is Adonijah knew that he'd been busted. He didn't quite, the coronation didn't happen in time. Um, and so he's freaked out, which you would be in Bible times. In Bible times, if your brother tried to be the king instead of you, um, the way you solved that problem is you'd kill him. That's the way you do that. And Adonijah knows this and knows that Solomon has every right to slay him, his brother, because he tried to usurp the kingship over him. 
So what does Adonijah do there in 1 Kings chapter 1? He runs to the, anybody remember? The altar at the temple, or, uh, you know, at the tabernacle, I should say. And he clings to the horn of the altar. And he says, please don't kill me, because he knew he could have been killed for that. That was an offense, capital punishment. And so basically Solomon says, they said, should we kill him? And Solomon says, I'll tell you what, let's, let's just allow him to test. We'll see if he's the, the man that he's supposed to be. But he says, if he even twitches wrong, he's dead. I'm giving paraphrase uh, of this story a little bit. Um, and so Adonijah is like, phew, I'm alive. Well, after the dust settles and Solomon becomes the king and they, they you know, kill the ox and they put on the crown of Solomon's head, um, Adonijah sneaks into Bathsheba and says, um, I just got a little thing to ask you. Well, she says, tell me what you want. I would like to have a particular girl be my wife. Oh, yeah? Who's that? I would like to be married to Abishag. Remember we talked about her earlier? Abishag? Who was that? The, the, the young girl that warmed David. The girl that was probably part of David's list of wives, if you would. And, and he says, I'd like to have dad's girl as my girl. And so she says, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do a little checking and see if that's possible. She goes and says, Solomon, your brother wants to have your dad's wife as his own. Which you have to understand, that is a dumb move. It's politically, like, you know, it's basically saying, I want to be recognized as the king still because I want to be married to my dad. It's the way they did things back in those days. It's a little weird for us to even think about that. But for him to marry Abishag would have been a bad deal. And it's possible, very, very possible, that Abishag was already part of Solomon's harem because she was part of David's. Are you guys still with me on the story? It's a little weird, I know. It's not stuff that, you know, your cousin did last week, but uh, hopefully. But in Bible times, uh, this is the kind of stuff, that's how they rolled. So Solomon says he wanted to do what? He, he wanted to marry Abishag. Now, think about this. As, as we look at this, some argue that Abishag was maybe his favorite wife. Maybe the woman of the Song of Solomon is Abishag, and here's, you know, uh, Adonijah, who wanted to be king instead of Solomon, saying, uh, it's all good, but one little favor, could you give Abishag for my wife? And so he sent um, one of David's old mighty men, a guy by the name of Benaiah. Does anybody remember Benaiah? You don't want to mess with Benaiah. He could kill you 50 ways and you wouldn't even know what happened. Uh, that was Benaiah. And so Benaiah goes out and slays Adonijah. He twitched, like I said, uh, the wrong way. And because of that move that he was trying to make politically, Solomon had him killed. Quite the drama around this young girl, Abishag. Um, and so all that to say, it's interesting when you, you wonder, is this the girl that's being talked about here in the story? Now, the reason I go into all that stuff is back to our text. Um, you know, um, this, is, this is what she's referring to when she says in verse 11, Go forth, ye daughters of Zion, behold the King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him. That's why Bathsheba was the one, not David, who literally put the crown on David's, or Solomon's head. And, and she was instrumental in making that happen. Had she not intervened, Solomon may not have ever been the king. And that would have not been God's plan or purpose or future for Israel. So all that to say, in the day of his espousals, in the day of the, of the gladness of heart, that was quite a day in 1 Kings chapter 1. And you can read that story if you want on your own time, uh, but it's quite a powerful story. So when, the reason I share that with you, it kind of shows you the swirling you know, dr drama that was around these events uh, that's happening here in the Song of Solomon. Now in chapter 4, we, we saw mostly the, the, the woman talking or the group of women singing in chapter 3. But in chapter 4, we almost entirely hear from the shepherd king, Solomon, about his girl. And he's going to sh uh, share his love for her, and we're going to hear about that until the very last verse where she's going to say something. But let's see what he has to say about her. In chapter 4, verse 1, Behold... Thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Me. 
I just crack up at this one because I've seen goats on the mountain of Gilead. I've seen that with my own eyes. And I'm, I always try to figure, what is that? Why, why does he say that about her hair? Does she like need conditioner or like, uh, like it's, uh, but, but I don't think he's talking about the hair on the goats. I, I believe maybe one of the things that's kind of fun when you're in Israel is you see all these huge flocks of goats, goats and all these Bedouins. It's like going back a thousand years, except for the, the Bedouins, they have these, these tents that look right, right out of the Bible and they live there, but they have a Mercedes parked right next to it with a, a satellite dish sticking out of it. Uh, you see that in Israel. It's kind of funny. Uh, but these Bedouins, they're still shepherds. They have little shepherd boys uh, walking on the mountains of Jerusalem and, and, um, and you can see what this looks like. And there is a certain beauty, I've got to say, to seeing a hillside full of sheep or goats following the shepherd. And it kind of, it's, it's almost like it flows as they're going across the mountains there in Israel. And it is kind of a beautiful thing. But also a flock of sheep or goats would have been wealth, prosperity. Um, anybody who had a big flock of sheep or goats going over the mountain, there was substance to it and value. You see, we have to kind of get out of the the mindset of Valentine's Day that's coming. I'm sure you guys are getting ready to muster up your most romantic sayings. Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. Hey, that's a freebie for you guys for Valentine's Day. Right there. You'll wow her with that. But, so, but I would not recommend wowing her with uh, the, the language of Solomon because times have changed. We don't even know what a flock of goats means. Um, other than we have to kind of reach back and think it meant real wealth, value, blessing, sustenance, um, health, um, and even a certain sense of beauty as the goats would go across the hills of Gilead. Are you guys with me on that? So we've got to shift gears in our thinking, and, and we've got to not be immature when we hear about her nose looks like the Tower of Lebanon. Uh, it's not an insult. It's actually he's talking th- about things that had real substance and value. And we got to see that because this in a way uh, is, is, is about what the Lord thinks of you and me. And that's humbling to me. When I think about how God thinks of me, this is the shepherd king loving his bride. We're the bride of Christ. So when he says thou art fair, he says you're beautiful. The Lord thinks of you as beautiful. And we know why, because we talked about that on Sunday. You're without spot, spotless blameless, beautiful before God. You have dove's eyes within thy locks. Dove speaks of the Holy Spirit. The church has the Holy Spirit in her. And uh, the, the blessing that comes from that is pictured here. Hair in the Bible, by the way, for you, you guys that are students of the Bible, hair does have a, a connotation of two main things. First, consecration. Second, submission. Hair has talked a lot about in consecration for the person that was set aside for God and for his purpose, that man that would be set aside as a Nazarite, he would make a vow and he would not cut his hair. Remember Samson. But there were, that was a lifelong Nazarite. There were others who became Nazarites for a short season um, and wouldn't cut their hair because the hair spoke of being set apart for God and for his purpose. That's consecration. The other thing we see in the Bible as far as hair is concerned is submission. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul talked about how in those days the woman's hair, she would grow out long and it would be a sign that she was submitted to the Lord. But if her hair wasn't long, she was to wear a head covering uh, to show her submission to the Lord before the angels. It's a whole other discussion about that. But uh, those of you that are freaked out by that, again, you can download the teaching from 1 Corinthians 11, and I spend an hour talking about that one because people freak out about head coverings and long hair and all that stuff. But that is what the Bible talks about. Consecration, being separate, set aside, but also submission before the Lord. So he admires and says her hair is beautiful. I wonder if those two elements are beautiful in your life to your bridegroom Jesus. Are you consecrated, set apart for the Lord and for his purpose? Are you submitted to the Lord? Lord, whatever you say, I'm going to do. I'm going to be submitted to your word, submitted to your will. That's what this bride gets. Uh, The hair, the eyes, her beauty, all is right here. Let's check her dental work. Are you ready? (laughs) Verse 2, thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, uh, which came up from the the washing. 
whereof every one bear twins, and none is barren among them. So she's not missing any teeth, praise the Lord. Uh, tell you what. <laughs> now, this is something I actually know more about than I'm, uh, 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 I'm embarrassed to say, actually. I know a lot about this. Um, you know, when, when you see sheep, um, the sheep wool kind of comes off as a sort of dingy, brownish-gray color. And that certain time of the year, you know, during the winter, it gets super thick and heavy. And there's, a sh- there's oil within the wool. And when we would work with our sheep on our little farm, man, you'd touch the sheep and your hands would almost start dripping with oil because that, that wool uh, carries heavy oil. But with that oil, everything sticks in the wool. Dirt sticks in the wool. And, and uh, the wool gets heavy with dis- debris. Everything from burrs to dirt uh, to cow manure, like everything sticks to the wool. And then the wool just keeps growing and then there's layer upon layer of stuff sticking to the wool. And it's quite kind of smelly, honestly. But as a young 4-H kid, me and my, my sisters, we'd take our sheep, and at that certain time of the year, they taught us how to shear the sheep. And you'd shear them at the time where it was still fairly long before the fair, when you were supposed to show the, the lamb and, and demonstrate how beautiful the lamb was. But if you, if you, you'd have to shear it, and this huge matted woolly coat comes off. And you can almost see the sheep relieved, like, oh, finally. It's like taking off a jacket in the dead of, uh, uh, once summer comes. Um, and they would take that wool and do stuff with it. But, but it was our job to let the wool grow just a certain puffiness just in time for the fair. Now, now here's the thing. That wool would grow. They'd still roll around in the dirt and stuff. And it'd still be that dingy gray wool. But if you got the right kind of soap, and if you had a lot of tenacity as a 4-H kid in time, which we did, You'd scrub that wool, and you'd scrub it on that little lamb. And I, I'll tell you, you'd, you could, you'd be shocked how white a lamb could get. Um, when you'd see these little lambs being shown by 4-H kids, they were just sparkly white. Their wool was as white as snow. Does this start to make sense? And, and, um, and that's something we did. And, and not only that, but the wool, when you got it all washed up, it would sort of be sort of lumpy and kind of irregular. And you would take some shears, they were sheep shears, and you put your thumb on the sharp end and you just start going over the back of the, of the lamb and you'd get it all perfectly shorn, cut, to where it was just a perfect little puffball. Like there was not one irregularity in that lamb because you'd make it so smooth with that and you'd take meticulous time to get that lamb all smooth. And, and that's the way we did it. We'd, we'd make our sheep perfect. Uh, if you ever go to the fair... Go look at the sheep uh, that the kids have been working on for a whole summer. And it's kind of amazing. They're white as snow and they're perfectly puffy. That's what you look like. That's who you are. What do you mean, Brett? No, not just your teeth. Your teeth are like that? Well, that's what it's saying. It's saying as white as wool can get and perfectly smooth, her teeth were beautiful. And uh, you say, Brett, why are we spending so much time on that? So she's got nice teeth, whatever. But teeth, uh, it's interesting because, again, looking at the types, and I don't mean to get too deep into this because we could. We could go crazy. But what are teeth mostly used for? Chewing. Chewing food. Is that something that the bride of Christ is supposed to do? Well, the answer is yes. And does a baby use its teeth? Well, the baby doesn't even have have teeth. Do you remember in Hebrews when the author of Hebrews sort of uh, was amazed when in chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, um, it says in verse 13 and 14, for everyone that uses milk is unskilled in the word of God or the word of righteousness, for he's just a baby. But strong meat belongs to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And one of the things about the bride of Christ is she's got a good set of choppers. She can eat the meat, and she's got good teeth, and that's the thing. I I think there are some interesting things about eating the Word of God, and we talk about Jeremiah the prophet, Ezekiel, other places in the Bible, of eating up the Word of of the Bible, and eating not just milk as a newborn babe, but chewing the meat of the Scripture, And, uh, and there's some links to that. So it's not just all sexual imagery or of beauty. There's probably some pretty powerful types about what the Church of Jesus Christ what's attractive to him. Hair, speaking of con- consecration and submission. Teeth, speaking of, um, of your teeth 
being able to eat and, and looking good, and also your dove's eyes, the Holy Spirit in the church. We can just go on and on with this stuff. Uh, but none of your teeth are missing. None of them are barren. That's, that's verse, verse 2. Then he goes on to the lips. Apparently, Botox wasn't in during those days because it says in verse 3, thy lips are like a thread of scarlet. Um, thy, thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of a pomegranate within thy locks. Now, some of you artists might be tempted to go home and try to paint the picture of this woman. And you'll see this. If you Google, you know, the, the Song of Solomon woman painted by artists, um, pomegranates on your temples don't look too good. Uh, hair like sheep and uh, teeth like wool doesn't look so good. There's actually some comical uh, efforts of painting pictures of this woman the way she's described her. But that's not the point. The point is not to look like exactly what he's saying, but it's more about what these things mean. And pomegranates were uh, the most uh, beautiful of fruit and still are in in Israel. One of the fun things we get to do is eat pomegranates uh, at our meals because they they have them everywhere. But also pomegranate juice is all over Jerusalem. And you can grab these cups of pomegranate juice, bright red, very delicious uh, juice and fruitful and it's beautiful. But the idea is what comes out of her mind, her temples is fruitful. Is your mind a, a fruitful mind? Is it pomegranates? of fruitfulness, or is it just cotton candy in there rattling around in your head? Uh, That's one of the things, what your mind is doing. And also, um, her speech is comely. Her lips are like a thread of scarlet. Boy, that's interesting. We all think lipstick, thin little red lips on this thread-like lip woman. But I think the idea is that her lips are red because it reminds me of Isaiah. Remember Isaiah the prophet? Oh, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. And here, right after it talks about having this mouth with red scarlet over her lips, it reminds me of Isaiah having the coal of fire searing his lips, purifying, cauterizing his evil speech. That's Isaiah and the prophet. We're going to be there in a few weeks, actually, talking about that. As the bride of Christ, does your speech come off beautiful? Does it come off, like it says here, your, your speech is comely or beautiful? Is the things coming out of your mind fruitful like pomegranates? That's the idea. Verse 4, thy neck is like the Tower of David, builded for an armory, whereon there hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. The, the Tower of David could be seen for miles. It was a very big sort of part of the palace of David, but it was also sort of the armory. And there was a place there where you could see the, the shields of the mighty men hanging there. If the shields were not hanging there, that was bad news because those men were off fighting battles trying to defend Israel. If the shields were hanging in the armory, that meant things were peaceful and things were secure. So this neck of, like it says here, you know, the neck is the Tower of David builded upon as an armory where there hangs a thousand bucklers. That, the idea is peace and tranquility. Um, her neck, peaceful. What's the next role in this whole thing? Well, we're the bride of Christ. We're the body of Christ. He's the head, according to the book of Romans. The neck connects the head to the body. Are are we good on that? That's pretty simple stuff, right? Is your neck peaceful? What is that? Is it connected to Christ? Is your relationship with Christ solid and connected and at at peace? Or is is your relationship with the Lord sort of um, tested at war? Um, That's the idea here. He's talking about how her neck is at peace and tranquil with the thousand bucklers and shields all hanging there safe and sound. Verse 5, Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins which feed among the lilies. There's one you guys could try for your Valentine's Day card. Uh, I I don't know if that would work uh, very much, but uh, you're saying, Brett, this is awkward. Could we move on? Nope. Um, (laughs) Now, of course, we could talk about, you know, what this means. And and what's funny is my favorite commentaries all skip this verse. They just skip right past it. They don't even talk about it. I'm like, okay, what does J. Vernon McGee have to say about uh, her breasts here? Tumbleweeds blowing across his commentary. Crickets chirping. Uh, He didn't say a word about that. Beloved. 
That's what he, that's what he, he called his congregation, dearly beloved. That's what he called them. But he didn't talk about her breasts. Um, and, and so you, it's, you're hard-pressed to try to find anything that people have said about this. But if you do think of it, it's, it's actually kind of interesting because you could talk about nourishment as a mother, you know, a young mother breastfeeding her child. And there's certain nourishment there. And there's a little bit of that imagery, the two young rows or fawns is the word row there, two young fawns that are twins, which feed, they're feeding among the lilies. So they're, if there's something, this newness and refreshing and vitality, life, life-giving, you know, is the idea of nourishment. And, and so you say, well, Brett, what is the church supposed to be that way? Well, I, I think that the church should be feeding the milk. Just like we were talking about the teeth and the meat in Hebrews, there should be the gospel and there should be new life and new believers coming into his church um, and they should be nourished. One of the things, this might help you understand why I do sometimes what I do, but one of the things I try to do in a teaching, and this is something that my pastor taught me, honestly, um, is any given teaching, I want to give three main elements, the milk, the meat, and the manna. What are those things? Well, the milk is the gospel. And you'll hear me every Sunday, I'll try to weave the gospel message so that the, the new believer or the, uh, the unbeliever can hear the good news of the gospel. And I'll look for any time, chance I can to put the milk in there because we need that. The meat though is the doctrine. And that's where I like to bring that into teaching too. And maybe the person who hasn't drank the milk yet won't understand the doctrine, but at least I'm gonna give them a little milk for that Sunday. But I also want to give meat for the old-time believer to say, man, what about that theology? What about that doctrine? What does it mean to have the propitiation in place doctrinally or the redemption or, uh, you know, imputed righteousness or even what does the Bible say about eschatology or like things that are just kind of heavier, more doctrinal. You got to bring that in. What's the manna then? Well, the manna was their daily bread that they ate every morning that was there for them specifically. If they tried to keep it, uh, it would go rotten. If they tried to serve it a week later to other people, it wasn't for them. It would be breeding worms. So I, I sort of liken the manna to the daily bread that the Lord has. And, and here's what I've found. Every Sunday morning, even on a Wednesday night, the Lord has often some parts of the teaching that are just for this group specifically. Um, I was just talking to uh, one of my favorite couples, just this great couple. They've been married 63 years. Uh, and uh, we, we were hanging out with them the other night. And he was telling me a great story about, uh, remember uh, several months ago, I did a teaching on let it go. And how you got to just sometimes let stuff go. And, and we were looking at the scriptures. And, and that manna for that was that some of you might have things that you needed to just let go. People that owed you money. And you were getting bitter about it. And you had to just let it go um, and forgive them, even though they weren't sorry. And we talked about that. Well, he had explained how he was going through something right at that moment that he knew he had to let it go. And they did. And he said he and his wife just felt so free after that. Well, uh, a few weeks later, there was another guy in the congregation. He was talking to this guy. And, and the guy, uh, he, was telling me, he was telling me this guy was going through a similar thing. And, he, and and this brother said, man, you need to do what Pastor Brett was talking. Were you there when Brett was talking about let it go? And the other guy's like, yeah, I was there. Uh, and the guy said, yeah, I should probably do that. He said, man, well, I did it. And man, the Lord's just blessed us. And he, he went and shared with it. So that other guy went and just let it go. And, uh, and both guys are now just so glad. They feel free and blessed that they just didn't cling to their little thing that was going to ruin them. It wasn't about the money that was owed. It wasn't about that. It was about just letting it go. And um, I loved hearing that because that's the manna stuff. When we're going through the Bible, I think the Lord's speaking to you and me right here and now. Where we're at in the Bible oftentimes is where we're at in our lives. Have you noticed that? The stuff that we're talking about a lot of the time just relates to what you're going through right now. Well, Brett, this verse about breasts, this doesn't have anything to do with me. Uh, <laughs> can we please move on? Well, I, I believe that it's the milk, the meat, and the manna. That's part of what's being seen here is just the nourishment that comes through his church. Um, that's kind of cool. Good stuff. Now, one other thing about this verse uh, 5. Um, it could be just simply romance, that he's attracted to her. And, and there's like, there is a romance part of this. And I'm not trying to undo that and just say it's, it's the word of God or the milk of the, or any of that uh, nourishment. I'm not saying it's only that. 
I believe there's a passion that the love has for his, the Lord has for his church. He loves us passionately, um, as a man would love his wife. And there's, that's an interesting image right there. I'm not wanting to undo that or say that's not present. I'm just saying that very well could be the meaning of it right there. The Lord loves us with a love that we have no idea how passionate it is. Well, verse 6. Until the day break, the shadows flee away. I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. And we looked at that on Sunday. Spotless. Verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Shinar and Hermon. From the lion's dens, from the mountains of leopards, um, like let's go on a tour over all of Israel mountains. Thou hast, verse 9, ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, um, with the chain of thy neck. How far is thy love, my sister, my spouse? How much better is thy love than wine? Um, this is great, by the way. You say, how much better? She said your love is like wine in chapter 1. He said her love is better than wine. That's interesting. That's the way the Lord looks at us. Verse 10, second half, how is better than wine and the smell of thine ointments than all spices. Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue, and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. Well, what does Lebanon smell like? Right now, bombs and (laughs) debris, concrete, Uh, It's really a sad thing because it wasn't that long ago, only, you know, um, 30, 40 years ago, Lebanon might have been one of the most beautiful places on the earth. People don't realize that. But once Hezbollah came up there and uh, totally took over Lebanon and it's just become a a ruin, a rubble. It's no longer as beautiful as it once was. But in Bible days, it seems like the Bible's constantly talking about the beauty of Lebanon. And that's what's being compared to her. He, he's loved by her, ravished by her. That's just amazing to think that the Lord loves us with that kind of love. Verse 12, a garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring that shut up, a fountain sealed. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, campfire with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, thou south. Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. We looked at verses 12 through verse 1 of chapter 5 two Sundays ago uh, about the garden of the Lord. And we are his garden and he shares his garden. It's it's an amazing uh, truth that we learn about the garden of the Lord. Uh, If you missed that, you can download that. Um, Only a few more verses, then we'll pack it up for the night. Um, In verse 2, we have here the woman speaking again. Um, Verse 1 was the the shepherd king. Now verses 2 through 8 is the woman speaking again of her man. She says, I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. She says, I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. Ladies, there's a phrase you could use in your Valentine's cards. Um, she, she, apparently her bowels moved. Now, um, <laughs> um, this is a hard one because uh, it's not super romantic, but the idea is um, her heart sank. That, that, that's what she would be saying there is her heart sank. Why did it sink? Her, her man knocks at the door. He's wanting to come in to be with her. 
But she's already went to bed. She's wearing her pajamas, eating cherry bonbons, just hanging out there, kind of, you know, uh, hanging out. And she says, what am I going to do? Can I put on my clothes really fast? Can I, I, I just washed my feet. Now I'm supposed to get up. And she sort of delays. And so her heart sinks because she's not really willing to get up out of bed and, and go open the door. So her bowels were moved. Her heart sank. That's what it says. Verse 5. So I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh. In other words, his smell was still there at the door um, upon the handles of the lock. You could tell he was right there holding the door, and I mean, she could smell his fragrance. Verse 6. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen that went about the city found me, and they smote me, and they wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am sick with love. What's going on? She dilly-dallied, and she didn't go to meet her uh, beloved uh, man, and, and he was gone. You see, this is sort of the coming true of her dream of chapter 3. Are you guys kind of feel like this is a repetition? It is. She dreamt it before, but this seems to be really happening. Where she kind of is like, oh, my beloved here, and I think I'm just going to, no, well, maybe I should go get the door. So she goes to get the door, but he's already gone. But instead of the watchman helping her, the watchman sort of beat her up. That's what's going on here. So now in verse 9, we have sort of the choir singing again. Uh, either the women of Jerusalem or somebody else, they say in verse 9, What is thy beloved more than another beloved? Or thou fairest among women? That uh, What is thy beloved more than another beloved? What uh, that thou canst, pardon me, that thou dost so charge us? She's going out and saying, What have you done with my beloved? And they're like, what, What's the big deal with your beloved? Does that feel like what the world is doing to us today when we talk about our Jesus? Uh, they, they want to beat us up now because we're saying Jesus is our, our Savior. When people use the name of Jesus in vain, and they say, Jesus Christ, and they use it in a horrible way, I'm offended by that. Why? Because he's, he's my, my bridegroom. He's, he's my, my Lord, my Savior. And I'm offended by that. And I'm not offended by much. But when people say Jesus' name with, with an indifference or, a, or an anger or belligerence, it's, it's, uh, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. And that's what's happening. She oversleeps, or she, she's in bed, and, and I should say, and she doesn't come, and she comes too late, and he's gone. And they're all saying, what's the big deal with your beloved? Whatever. And she's, she's got a problem. So he's gone. She's in trouble. They're treating her badly. What's going to happen? Well, stay tuned, and next week we'll see what happens to this girl who was not going to her beloved when she should have. <laughs> Lord, we're so thankful for your word. Even these poetic verses of Song of Solomon are kind of different for us, and we don't always know how to interpret all this stuff, but Lord, the one thing we definitely get is that you love us, and that you see us as beautiful, spotless bride. How thankful I am, Lord, for that love relationship you have for us and for your church. So tonight, as we wrap it up, I pray that you'd bless this congregation as we spent this time in your word. And like the fruitful mind of the woman with pomegranates on her temples, I pray that we would have fruitful mind and thought. I pray that we would have your word in our mouth and on our lips. I pray, Father, that we'd be a beautiful church and a beautiful bride for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. To take advantage of our media ministry, we encourage you to visit us anytime at athecreek.com, where we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download.